0: I'm Michael,
1: and I'm Michelle,
0: and this is The Climate Crisis.
1: Climate
2: scientists have become, I think, increasingly alarmed at the the lack of urgency in the response and the um, the presumption that as long as the economy's going gangbusters, we'll be able to solve any problems. That as long as the gross domestic product is sufficiently gross, um, we'll be able to buy our way out of trouble. But I make the point that no amount of money will restore an extinct species or rehabilitate the barrier reef or restore degraded land, productive land, on any realistic human timescale.
0: That's the voice of Ian Lowe. Who has quite the bio and um, that we'll get to in a minute, but safe to say that he is one of the giants, um, one of the intellectual
1: giants talking about the climate crisis, certainly in Australia. Absolutely. And today's show will be focusing on Hothouse Earth um, and digging into the client um, science with Professor Ian Lowe. We interviewed him at Woodford and he gave us an hour and a half of his time and covered a broad range of Mm. science for you to listen to so that you're getting the most up to date. Information on climate science from a world's leading expert.
0: Bringing your bio down to a manageable limit was a feat in itself, I have to say. But here's what we, we did: a
1: lucky dip of all your awards <laughs> to see which ones we'd actually.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Professor Ian Lowe is an emeritus professor and has been prominent environmental scientist since the 80s. In 1989, he wrote one of the first books on global warming called Living in the Greenhouse, and many more since. In fact. He's the author of over 20 books and more than 500 other publications. Professor Lowe's contributions to environmental science have won him, amongst many other awards, a Centenary Medal, the Eureka Prize for Promotion of Science, and being made Officer of the Order of Australia in 2001, no less. He chaired an Australian Government Advisory Council that produced the first national report on the state of the environment back in 1996. He's been the president of the Australian Conservation Foundation and he's also been a referee for the IPCC, uh, which I'm very interested in, and attended both the Geneva and Kyoto conferences. Uh, but before we begin, just really want to thank you for your work over a long period of time mm-hmm. in this area. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you. I mean, mm-hmm. You've got to keep chipping away.
2: You? I mean, I've always thought that um, one of the jobs of a research scientist, as somebody put it, to seek the truth and make it known, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been obvious for at least 30 years what the science is saying about human impact on the climate, and uh, not trying to communicate that is re-
0: would really be irresponsible. Mm. Look, I just thought as a starting off point, people are listening to the show with all kinds of different understanding about what's going on, so it's rare we get to speak to a scientist with your kind of pedigree and background and length. So. There's a lot of talk about runaway climate change. What's meant by that and where are we in the state of things? So, in 1985,
2: the science was still cautious, but saying it looks like there might be a problem. I thought by 1989 it was clear that there was a problem, and that's why I wrote a paperback book. But um, it was clear 30 years ago that. The extra carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases were increasing the Earth's capacity to trap heat and we knew from physics that has been known since the 19th century that that would probably increase the temperature. Um, where the science was uncertain was how much it would change the temperature and how rapidly because there are time lags in the system and there are also feedback loops, some of which accelerate change and some of which slow it down. The real worry is that science can't predict the feedback loops that are reinforcing accelerating climate change. I'll give you three examples. Mm. Um, as we have seen in recent weeks, uh, as it gets hotter, uh, bush and forests get drier and more likely to burn. As they burn, they put more carbon dioxide in the air, which means it gets hotter, which means Forests are drier and more likely to burn, which puts more carbon dioxide in the air, reinforcing the trend of of warming. Um, As it gets warmer, the uh, ice cap at the North Pole shrinks. Snow and ice reflect almost all the sunlight that hits it. Ocean absorbs almost all the sunlight that hits it. So the shrinking of the polar ice cap means more sunlight is absorbed which means it gets warmer, which means the ice cap shrinks, which means more sunlight is absorbed, which means it gets warmer, and so on. The third and possibly most serious concern is that the second most important greenhouse gas after carbon dioxide is methane. Mm. But the big concern is the outgassing of methane from Arctic tundra, Mm. because as it gets warmer, more methane is released, which means it gets warmer, which means more methane is released. The reason that's a significant concern is that back in the 1980s, the consensus was that doubling the amount of carbon dioxide in the air would probably increase the temperature by about two degrees, perhaps three. There's now a concern that it might be five or
0: six. As I'm reading the information now, and I'm no scientist, so I'm just reading you know, what's accessible to the layman, mm. but it seems like many scientists are saying 1.5 degrees is catastrophic. For the human, for human civilization, I mean, I heard you say in one talk we're already set to use all the carbon that will set us to 1.5 in 2020. So, so 1.5 is unavoidable, and as you say, two degrees is probably unavoidable, and there's baked-in stuff already. So, where are we, and where we're going right now? Changes we have seen in
2: Australia in the last decade are the result of an increase in average global temperature of one degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bleaching of the the coral, uh, longer and more severe bushfire seasons, more frequent extreme events and so on. Mm -hmm. Certainly at 1.5 degrees most of the world's coral reefs will be gone um, and food production will be significantly affected. Two degrees is pretty disastrous for human civilization. And I saw one paper recently that said Beyond two degrees, Miami and Bangladesh cannot survive because the, the atmosphere will keep warming even if we take stronger action than anyone believes possible at the moment. The atmosphere will keep warming for a hundred years and the sea level will keep increasing for several hundred years. So um, low-lying areas uh, are already doomed
0: talking about 1.52 degrees and interestingly n- enough in the weather uh, that was our hottest and driest December on record yes. and uh, they also said in that news broadcast which I only just heard that Australia is averaging 1.5 degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels already,
1: already. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's incredible yeah. and one of the things that wasn't included in that which Ian did share with us is when we think about temperature increase we have to realise that 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees isn't democratically distributed. So in some areas, it's going to be you know, sometimes 10 degrees um, yes. higher. Yes, so, you know, yes, yes. making it very difficult.
0: Australia is set to be one of the hotter countries.
1: That's right, mm. yeah. I heard um, that the Irish Prime Minister called Australia the canary in the coal mine.
0: Mm. And uh, I think he also said... If the environment was a coal mine, yes. we'd be up to our knees in canaries.
3: You know, oh, the fire is running low. Can you feel the flames?
0: about the IPCC because he had a lot to do with it for quite some time he was he a did. referee and, um, and there's a lot of talk about IPCC after 2018 and yes. Greta talks about IPCC a lot and the 12 years to go and it's sort of taken as standard scientific thought and yes. I've heard many different things about it and I got a chance to address some of those things with Ian. And because you served on the IPCC um, I don't know if you were actually on the board or you were an no, advisor no, no, no I was a referee you were their, a referee reports yeah. and so that means you. they send the reports to you and you double check them yeah, is that essentially you check
2: uh, you know, that they that the report is an accurate reflection of the
0: science that it draws yes, on yes so so obviously the ipc came into you know high focus in 2018 when they said that released their report and said we have got 12 years left you know but yeah. the people that i've spoken to that are sort of connected with these things have said that that ipc the ipcc report first of all it's really dated by the time it comes out because yes. of peer review etc yep, yep. and it's also heavily influenced Uh, by governments wanting them to say something else. So as someone who's been close to the IPCC, how accurate actually is that? Well, it's the cautious,
2: conservative, lowest common denominator of what is absolutely (laughs) irrefutable (laughs) science. What gets into the IPCC reports are things that not even the governments of Saudi Arabia and Australia and uh, uh, Japan and the United States can find any flaw in. It's the cautious conservative lowest common denominator and that means that almost invariably things are significantly worse than the IPCC report. Typically the IPCC reports are three or four years behind where the scientific analysis is
1: with one of our shows and we were talking about the science of climate change and someone posted up Judith Curry, though we seem to bring her out. Um, She's a climatologist and a sceptic, a climate sceptic. And she says that you can't project future climate because of the uncertainty monster. Judith
2: Curry is one of, you can count literally on the fingers of one hand, reputable climate scientists who are still not convinced. In the 1980s, the majority of scientists thought it was too early to say that human activity was changing the climate. By about 1995, the the scientific community overwhelmingly had accepted it. There was still a minority who said they weren't convinced, and that minority's got smaller every year, and you can now literally count them on the fingers of one hand. And I think the proof that climate science is reputable is that we are seeing now the trends that the climate science was saying 30 years ago Mm -hmm. we would see. The only criticism you could make is that they've probably understated the pace and scale of change because we are seeing in 2019 changes that the climate science in the 1980s was saying we could see by 2030.
0: As you're talking about all this, the facts just seem so clear. Sometimes I wonder why this is even remotely a debate.
2: I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the book Merchants of Doubt by uh, Oreskes and Conway. Oh, get right down. Basically it analyzes the campaign of orchestrated misinformation by mm. the tobacco industry mm. after it became clear in the 60s that it was shortening the life of half its customers. Mm. and uh, The argument actually couched it in these terms um, doubt is our product that you can't prove the science is wrong but if you cast doubt on it that uh, makes the political climate for enforcement of restrictive action difficult Mm. makes it more likely that you'll be able to continue Mm. selling your product Mm. and what they show is that the techniques used by the fossil fuel industry, once they realized that the climate change issue was serious, are exactly the same as those used by the tobacco industry 30 years earlier. And in some cases, exactly the same uh, academic spokespeople uh, have been wheeled out to say, you know, the science is uncertain, uh, there's no grounds for interfering in a profitable industry.
0: I read an article, I think in the last week or maybe in the last two weeks, w- which outlined the um, marketing budget of mm. fossil fuel companies to create doubt, you know, to basically market doubt Jeez. around climate denial. Mm. 200 million a year they're spending combined.
1: So I had a few questions for Ian Lowe as well, very happy to um, have such an expert in the midst and he's actually, among his many, many books, written a book about population growth um, called Bigger or Better and I was sort of interested with these projections um, about the environment and how we're going to survive and I wondered how can the earth sustain this growing population and what his thoughts were on this.
2: If you go back to the first global models, the first report to the Club of Rome, The Limits to Growth, published in 1972. What it said was that if the trends of growth in population, resource use, uh, industrial production, agricultural output and pollution were all to continue, we would reach limits within a hundred years, i.e., by 2070. but the most likely result would be economic, social and environmental collapse um, in the middle decades of this century sort of starting around 2030. Now the really worrying thing is Dr. Graham Turner of CSIRO recently did an analysis with 40 years of data from 1970 to 2010 and basically we're right on track if our aim was to produce social, economic and environmental collapse in in the middle decades we are, are right on track Um, And that population curve peaks about Mm 2030 and then goes steeply downward as a result of increasing inability to provide food Mm -hmm. and probably fighting amongst ourselves as things get more difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's not a very bright future. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that the Club of Rome also said none of those trends is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible to redirect the trajectory of human development.
1: People think that the technology that I would argue has caused the problems. Uh, is going to fix the problems particularly geoengineering
2: and the problem with that argument is that you can never change only one thing in a complex system mm. so for example there are people who say uh, I don't know, we, we should generate artificial clouds to uh, stop some of the sunlight coming mm. in to uh, slow down the rate of increasing temperature but if you stop sunlight coming in that affects your ability to grow crops and produce mm. food uh, because there's no way of producing clouds that shade the cities but don't shade the growing areas, Um, we're, we're still cosmically ignorant of the complexity of natural systems. Our history is littered with examples of people changing something and finding that there are a range of unexpected consequences, and climate change is the most obvious example.
1: When you put all these things together, have we created the possibility of our own extinction?
2: If you look at the fossil record of the five previous major extinction events, uh, the majority of all species have disappeared in those extinction events. The previous ones have all been caused by natural forces. We might be the first species that generates its own extinction by, uh, uh, by reckless action. Mm. And uh, I remember there was a lovely line in um, uh, of documentary made about um, testing of nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands and the Marshall Islands woman um, said basically how could you let this happen, you're clever people and then she reflected for a moment and said actually you're very clever at doing stupid things (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be the epitaph for our civilization: (laughs) that we're very clever at doing stupid things
3: I miss the earth so much I miss my wife lonely out space On such a time that's flight
0: a bit of territory already but he was right there and I just so wanted to speak to him about um, the IPCC Paris meeting the Paris agreement that was um, designed to keep temperature global temperatures down below two degrees and uh, you know how possible is this and where are we going with that and read so much about it so why not speak to an expert the goal of the
2: Paris agreement was to try to limit the increase in average global temperature to two degrees but uh, almost no country is doing enough to meet that Paris target. Australia certainly isn't, I mean we're relying on creative accounting the fact that we met our ridiculously generous Kyoto target to say that uh, we don't really need to do anything basically the US is doing very little China isn't doing as much as it needs to, India, Saudi yeah, yes. Arabia when. The Australian Academy of Science said in 2014 that to have a 50-50 chance of keeping the increase in average global temperature below 2 degrees, global emissions need to peak by 2020 and go steeply downwards. Now by the time people are listening to this it will already be 2020. If you seriously believe that global emissions will peak this year and go steeply downwards, I want to know what you're smoking and where I can get some, because I mean, there's no credible evidence that, yes. that global emissions will peak this year. In yeah. fact, it's very hard to be optimistic they'll peak by 2030 unless there's much more urgent action than we see at the moment. But the fundamental problem, I think, is the, the presumption that the economy is the be-all and end-all. i mean, I'll give a specific example. If I say to politicians that the Great Barrier Reef is a unique natural ecological system that we need to protect, you can almost see their eyes glaze over, mm. but when you point out that it supports a $6 billion a year tourist industry that employs 60,000 people, well this is serious, we've got to do something about it. It's um, the, it really is the height of irresponsibility to be talking about opening new coal mines or extending gas production from the Northern Territory, which governments are seriously talking about, uh, to create jobs and economic activity in the short term, uh, when we know in the long term that's going to be
0: disastrous. It seems like that's the only thing that influences the conversation, is dollars. Seems like that's the only thing that people are really caring about, or only thing that has any political clout. I mean, the really
2: annoying thing is that we have the technical capacity to solve the problem. Mm. I mean, with concerted action, we could convert Australia totally to run off renewable energy with storage within a decade. Mm-hmm. But it's the lack of political will that's the real problem, and um, the conclusion that politicians might realistically draw from the election of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison that uh, any half plausible line of bullshit will persuade people that there isn't a problem and that uh, you can go on with business as usual. My argument is that the economy gives us things that we want. but. Increasingly it gives us things that we don't actually need and which we have to be persuaded by clever marketing to want. Natural systems give us the things we absolutely need like breathable air, drinkable water, the capacity to produce our food. And I remind people that every molecule in your body was once part of the natural systems of this planet. Mm-hmm. And every molecule in your body will, in time, again be part of the natural systems. We are just a temporary rearrangement, mm-hmm. and we are just as dependent on natural systems as gum trees or galahs or goannas or garfish, mm-hmm. and we really should recognise that. I mean, I, I
0: I do wonder, given given that's the mindset of the culture that we're in, and given the time that we're in and th- that we're heading way above uh, one point five you know, and in the short term. Mm. As a scientist, you know, I have my own feelings about this from the science that I read, but you're obviously way deeper in it. Do you you feel there's any hope?
2: There's no rational grounds for hope. Uh, I was invited in 2000 to give a paper on the topic, Can Civilization Survive the 21st Century? And I said if you're a gambler, you wouldn't back us with stolen money because Mm. we don't show any sign collectively, uh, even of recognising the scale of the problem, let alone having the political will and the social institutions to deal with it. Mm. The only ground for cautious optimism is recognising that human systems are non-linear and can change very rapidly from one stable state to another. The late uh, Professor Lester Milbrath argued about 20 years ago that if civilisation survives we will probably see climate change as the great educator. Yes. It was the, the, the force that reminded people firstly that we're all in this together, that nation states can't go it alone, it's a global problem, it can only be solved by concerted global action and secondly it's a dramatic reminder of the cost of exceeding the limits of natural systems. <laughs> the, the optimist in me says uh, while there is no rational basis mm-hmm. to be optimistic and all of the the big social changes that we now take for granted, like women having the vote or ending slavery, uh, started with a small minority of dissident people Mm. uh, persuading their neighbours and their friends and their relatives that what we were doing was morally unacceptable Mm. and eventually changing the overall political climate. So um, the reason I keep talking about climate change and other environmental issues because I remind people that even if climate change wasn't happening we would still be in serious environmental trouble. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. precipitated the sixth major extinction event in the history of the planet. We're losing species at a rate comparable with the five previous major extinction events because of destruction of habitat and introduced species and chemical pollution. Uh, There are other serious problems, Mm -hmm. um, but unless you make people aware of the problems, there is no possibility, even in principle, of there being a concerted reaction. If enough people know about it and enough people are sufficiently concerned, then sooner or later our leaders will be dragged
0: kicking and screaming into, into acting. And will it be will, will the human action be in time to meet what the, what's activated on the planet already?
2: Well, I mean, it, one problem is the long time lags in the system. The carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere today Uh, will still be there at the end of this century. Mm. Uh, There are very long time lags in the system, that's why people talk about a carbon budget, Mm. that the total carbon budget for keeping the increase in average global temperature below two degrees will on current trends be used up by 2030. Mm. So unless the world has decarbonized significantly by 2030, Mm. there is no prospect even in principle of keeping the increase in temperature below two degrees. you know, we've already locked in as you said already baked in at least one and a half degrees even if the world went to zero carbon today because the carbon we've already put into the atmosphere will keep changing the climate for another 80 to 100 years
0: it's strong talking about all that isn't it i mean he yeah. was one of the more hopeful people that we've spoken to but even he said uh he sees no rational basis for hope mm. i mean he i think his thing was his he was hoping along the lines of, well, human systems can change really in the, fast, yeah, nonlinear ways, and perhaps that leads this change. But I mean, my, you know, my personal mm. feeling is, the, the Earth systems don't rely on human systems. Human systems mm. rely on Earth systems. So even mm. if our systems change super fast, it doesn't necessarily fit in with what is going on in the Earth. But I hope he's right. I hope if there is a sudden change and. I hope he's right. What can I say? And also, he talked about this earlier. It's not just a CO2 issue. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a methane or nitrous oxide issue no. either. No. We're, it's an ecological issue. Yes. We are expanding. We are wiping out the wildlife on this country. We, we can't live mm. without the wildlife. Mm. We can't live without it. And we are wiping. Some, so, the, so the issues are multiple and many. Mm. And... Um, You know, I I did like one thing he said there at the end, uh, that if we survive, Mm. uh, and let's face it, it is an if at this point, there's no doubt about it, but if we survive, um, climate change will be seen as the great educator.
1: Yes, I really love that as well. You know, there's there's realities about our place in nature, you know, as we've had this whole sense of dominion over nature and we're having, you know, I think they're sort of starting to restore some real truths that we we are totally into interdependent and dependent on this system.
2: Hoping the voters just might have notice Seems to have exhausted its currency So he sang as he watched and waited till election time We need a climate change policy
4: When I was a young man I carried my pack And I lived the free life of a rover From the Murray's Green Basin, to the dusty outback I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915, my country said, son, it's time to stop rambling, cause there's work to be done so they gave me a tin hat, and they gave me a gun And they sent me away to the war And the band played sing Matilda As we sailed away from the quay And amidst all the tears, and the shouts and the cheers, we sailed off for Gallipoli. Oh, well, I remember that terrible day, when the blood stained the sand and